Corbynism the Postmortem is kindly sponsored by the Media Masters podcast, a series of one-to-one interviews with the very biggest media names, hosted by Paul Blanchard. You can tune in anytime at mediamasters.fm. And now, here's the show. This is obviously a very disappointing night for the Labour Party. I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take going forward. It's not, it's not Corbynism. There is no such thing as Corbynism. Jeremy Corbyn's torrid relationship with the backbench MPs of the Parliamentary Labour Party culminated in a vote of no confidence in 2016, which he lost by an astonishing margin of 197 to 40 votes. Despite losing a confidence vote, Corbyn fought the Labour Party machine to stay on the leadership ballot as an incumbent and was returned to office by a 61% majority, dashing the PLP's hopes of a change of direction. The Labour Party's narrow defeat in the 2017 election solidified Corbyn's position and effectively pacified much of the dissent emanating from his own benches until a handful of MPs resigned or defected to other parties over Brexit and anti-Semitism. But what of the dissenting MPs who stayed? And what does the future hold for a party that remains firmly shaped in Jeremy Corbyn's image following its humiliating electoral loss in 2019? Hello and welcome to Corbynism the Postmortem, with me, your host, Oz Katerji. Joining me on this episode to discuss Brexit, anti-Semitism, backbench dissent and the future of the Labour Party is the Labour MP for Walthamstow, Stella Creasy. We are now at the halfway point in this limited series, as we start to approach the closing stages of the Labour leadership election, and we begin to see what direction the party takes into the new decade. I'd like to thank everyone that's tuned into the show so far. Your support has been overwhelming. Corbynism the Postmortem is a 100% solo project from me that I'm able to bring you for free every week thanks to kind donations to my Patreon. If you've enjoyed the series so far and would like to support me, it would mean a lot if you considered subscribing to my Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash And now, on with the show. Hello, Stella. Thank you so much for joining us today. I see you've brought your daughter into work today, so if there are any uh, disruptions, it'll be... (laughs) She's probably more coherent than me, (laughs) 11 weeks, so... Well, anyway, thank you so much for taking the time out to join us. So, let's start with the election defeat. How did you feel on election night when those... uh... Oh, look, it's it's, it's horrible. It's horrible for a number of reasons, uh, on a very personal level... You know, I mean, I've been a Labour Party activist for 26, 27 years now. You desperately want, because you believe you can create a better world with a Labour government. So when you don't win, that's devastating because you think about what's been lost. On a personal level, you lose colleagues. Um, And I feared that we might lose the election. I didn't quite comprehend oh my daughter so she was also upset as well she was two weeks old on the day so <laughs> she remembers it well and um you know the, the the scale of the defeat and the nature of the defeat meant that it was very shocking colleagues who I've worked with on a number of things we lost and therefore you lose their friendship you lose their expertise you lose their comradeship and that hurts too what do you think the biggest reasons for that defeat were so I think it's very important to be honest that it's not any one thing 
um, look, I think it's just too easy to say, ah, oh, it was leadership, as much as the Lord Oshcroft polls. And certainly that was coming up on the doorstep in Walthamstow, as was Brexit. Um, but I think this has been coming for some time, actually. Um, and I think the most telling part of the Lord Ashcroft research for me is the thing about people feeling that the Labour movement doesn't speak for people like me anymore. And that isn't any one thing. That is a sensation that Labour has slowly but surely disconnected itself from the communities it's trying to serve. Now, people want to make, I think, rather easy assessments that it's just about working class versus middle class, town versus city. I think actually we've started to disconnect across the country. I mean, I'm very mindful that when I got elected in 2010, we had most of the seats in Scotland, for example, which, you know, just now seems a, a long distant memory. Um, and that we were also losing seats and we, we, we've, we've never won back seats in the south of England. And now we're losing seats that we've held for generations that tells you that the Labour movement is no longer rooted in the communities it seeks to serve. Uh, and, and for a political movement that's founded on the idea of collective action, that is absolutely toxic. Um, you know, if you're the right, you can always fall back on the market. If you're the left, you need to be able to reach and connect with people across the country because you need to be able to get them involved in what change you're trying to achieve. So when you're losing that connection, that is not just one election defeat that, you know, you've got to chalk up to history and go, well, that was terrible. It's a really big wake-up call for understanding why it is that people feel that you are not like people like them. So before we go into some of those examples more in depth, what do you think Corbynism got right? Oh, look, I think things in the last couple of years in terms of people's sense that change was possible, that is really important and powerful. Because again, I go back to if you're a political movement founded on the idea that collective activism changes the world, offers up choices, you know, individually how wealthy you and I get we'll only ever make limited choices collectively we can change the choices on offer whether you're wealthy or poor that's always been a central principle for me of socialism that actually it's the point of collective action that changes things together I would argue that certainly in the last 10-15 years that sense of collectivism now I, it used to be a very deferential collectivism I'm not somebody who harks back to a halcyon era of political activism with the left uh, in the 1950s and 60s but there was a sense that change could be made to happen by governments. Um, we've lost that as a country. Certainly the idea that any change could be good. I mean, it feels like an almost a very American right-wing idea about, you know, you've got to get government out of your way because that's what's holding you back. And what I think that Jeremy has done is give people the idea that governments can do things again. I think that's what makes me sad in a way is that actually when you look at that manifesto, it felt a bit like a wish list rather than a kind of big vision of what that can-do attitude could be. Um, frankly, I sort of felt the broadband poll kind of embodied it, actually, because it was the idea that you might not be able to pay your electricity or your water bill, but you could tweet about the fact that you couldn't do that, that seemed to sum up where we'd got wrong with the idea that with change as possible, what was the biggest and most important change we needed to make? So, yeah, so I would certainly say that where I think what Jeremy did was to get people... Excited and inspired about the idea that change could happen. Where I felt always frustrated was that we were very low in our ambitions about what that change might be um, in a world which needs really big change. So Jeremy Corbyn became leader on a wave of popularity with yeah. the membership. How do you think he went from being so popular with the membership in 2015? And obviously, he's still popular with the membership today. But how do you think he went from being seen as this figure? to being 
seen in the polls as the most unpopular political leader of the opposition since polling history began. So I think what was fascinating to me, look, I stood for deputy leader at the same time that Jeremy stood for leader, and I went round and I listened to all the hustings because they were before the deputy hustings. Um, And what Jeremy did very well was to say we needed to do things differently, um, because we did. And I think by the point you got to in 2015, the Labour movement was running on empty and had been for, I'd say, over a decade, actually. It had become very managerial about why it was seeking office and what change it wanted to make. And he came along and said, this isn't, this isn't the only way forward. I think by 2019, people were like, well, show us your homework. Show us actually then what you do mean. You know, say, what it, why is broadband the thing that we've got to make free, say, rather than your water bills or your energy bills? Why is it when it comes to education that it's free tuition as opposed to early years that you're championing? Um, now, actually, you know, there were promises and pledges made on all those things. But in terms of the mood music and what people heard, I think by 2019... People were sold on the idea that things had to be different. I mean, you know, this is a country that doesn't have a lots of love for Boris Johnson. Um, but what I think they were saying to us is, but you guys don't know what you want to do either or why you want to do it. And that matters. You know, the, the public aren't daft. They will accept, they will fight for, they will want quite big change if you show them how you can get there. If you just say, well, it's me and I'm just great, um, then they kind of go, yeah, I, I, I don't buy it. They want to see your homework. And I think where the Labour movement have done really well in history is by being both incredibly radical about what he wants to do. And people will talk about 1945, but I also think you've got to look at the white heat of technology. And yes, you've got to look at 1997. Yeah, in 1997, we went into a, an election with a pledge to end child poverty. That's a big thing to do, but it was a big thing based on, and here are the set of things we're going to do to make that happen. And I think the public looked at us and kind of said... I don't know if I believe you know why you want to do it. Um, and, you know, in contrast, you had Boris Johnson, who on paper, everyone says, and I think on the left, we have to be very careful. People are very dismissive of Boris Johnson as a buffoon. I don't think he's a buffoon. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. Um, and I think he was able to convince the public with the get Brexit done that even on this big thing, he knew how to do something now. We can argue about whether that's true or not, but the contrast with a with a labour movement that looked like it wanted everything and didn't know how to to move forward next is quite telling. You know, people just didn't they didn't think we had the courage of our convictions, which is ultimate irony because I think there is a lot of a lot of conviction in our politics, but there wasn't a lot of thinking and planning for it. Now, obviously, anti-Semitism was quite a large issue for um, why the public started to yeah their opinion started to shift on, on Jeremy Corbyn. Um, how, how did you find the leadership's approach to that issue from the early days onwards? Oh, terrible. And I said so. And I was part of saying so in the PLP. I sat and I watched colleagues of mine um, essentially be constructively dismissed from the Labour Party. And I used that phrase and tried to take that. And I was on the parliamentary committee trying to put this stuff right because I also believed that it's never enough to go, there's a problem you also you have to challenge people on the solution. I mean, so much of politics is people wanting you to wring your hands and say, isn't it terrible? And actually change happens when you say, and here's the thing we could do about it. So for me, from very early on, it was quite clear that we needed a fundamental reform of the process. I, I want to be honest. I don't think anti-Semitism is a new phenomenon within the Labour movement. What I think has happened over the last four years is it's become front and centre and normalised as an acceptable set of questions to ask whereas before it was a fringe thing that doesn't 
make it okay. I just mean that the idea that suddenly this is new, we have to be honest with ourselves that the left has always had a strain of anti-Semitism um, within it. What was frustrating was you had both a problem expanding and becoming mainstream and becoming normalised and a leadership that was saying, well, it's not up to us to do anything about it. So I would have debates where people would say, well, that's a decision for the NEC. And I'd say that might be technically true, but actually leadership sometimes is about saying that this is what I think should happen and I will fight for that argument. And that's what I was asking of, of Jeremy myself was, well, even if you can't formally institute an independent process, you could say that that's what you want to happen. That didn't happen and that was frustrating because I think it's great now to hear all the leadership candidates saying that they will do that, but the damage that has been done over the last four years, I fear it will take a long time to repair, not just in terms of the practicalities of all the cases that are still to be dealt with, but in terms of people's sense that when when we have a problem, we can act quickly to fix it. Um, I guess there's a, there's a recurrent theme in the answer I'm giving you, which is about detail. Um, you know, I don't think you should go into office if you haven't done your homework about how you're going to make change happen because I think the British public deserve the best and I think that's the same on whether it's your economic policy, your approach to Brexit or indeed how you're going to sort out anti-Semitism. So um, you you briefly mentioned the, the Ashcroft polling before. Yeah. Now that seemed to show a massive disparity between the way the electorate and indeed Labour voters saw um the Labour leadership's approach to anti-Semitism and the way Momentum and Labour members saw uh, the approach to anti-Semitism. That I think I believe the question was, do they believe it had been wildly exaggerated uh, by opponents of Jeremy Corbyn? And you know, how does the new leader deal with something like so, that? So look, I think so. I think there's a number of things that have to happen. I mean, actually, it should just be a given that the cases get done. It is a source of shame to me that we have cases that have dragged on longer than three months. I mean, that seems to me ridiculous that we've got people with a massive backlog of this stuff because actually if you're an anti-racist movement, you prioritise resource into that than maybe something like Labour Live. Um, but more fundamentally than that, one of the things I'm very struck by is there are an awful lot of members who have never actually dealt with anti-Semitism before. Um, now, that is not to excuse anti-Semitism, but it is to recognise that probably prior to 2015... It wasn't, although it was prevalent, it wasn't a debate that people were particularly having to be aware of perhaps some of the awful tropes that people use. Uh, I mean, you know, um, the, the concepts like the blood libel are ancient and yet seem esoteric to some because they hadn't been things that people had talked about before. So to see them in a modern format, perhaps for some people, they hadn't really thought about it in that way. Um, so I think there is a, a piece of work which goes much further than just dealing with the cases. Like, that should be a given. The people who are anti-Semitic, and sadly, we have them in my local party still. Um, and, uh, you know, they should just shouldn't be members of the Labour Party. That should be a given. The wider conversation about what does racism look like in the contemporary era, um, you know, that should be something the Labour movement should be at the forefront of rather than catching up on. Um what does that mean in practice? Look, I mean, I'm in horrified by the way in which we treated the Jewish labour movement. I'm still horrified by people who talk about the idea of having other Jewish groups be given a status in the labour movement, because you wouldn't do that to LGBT labour, for example. Um, but there is a blind spot here for people because it's not been a debate they've had. And I, I also think something's really important about this. Look, the Jewish community is not a large community in the UK in comparison to other minority communities. 
one of my fears is that there are some who I think made a calculated decision that it was okay to dispense of that particular community because it wasn't a big vote. Most people probably wouldn't be that bothered by it because they perhaps didn't have Jewish friends, they didn't necessarily see it, it hadn't been part of their lives before, and that, that therefore you could move on from this debate by just saying it's not happening. Um, the contrast I draw is the concerns I have about misogyny and sexism in the labour movement, which we have an issue with as well. I mean, we have cases, again, that haven't been dealt with. We need um, to address behaviours within the labour movement. But you're talking about 51% of the population. Um, and I would love for people to be clear that there is no hierarchy of inequality within the labour movement. And therefore, even if you're talking about one or two cases of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, and sadly we know we're not they should be given as much priority and prominence for dealing with as the sexism, as racism. The, 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 the thing that I hate is people who have a kind of whataboutery about, well, there's a, a lot of Islamophobia in the Tory party, and, and I think there probably is. There's Islamophobia in the Labour movement too. But we are an anti-racist party that should be holding ourselves to a higher standard and asking ourselves why, when it came to this minority, we got it so badly wrong. So... Um... There was obviously hostility started to grow between the Labour Party, uh, the Parliamentary Labour Party and the Labour leadership's office. Can you talk me through those, some of those moments where you started to think, actually, this really isn't working? Well, it was, I mean, look, look it's very raw because Luciana um, was incredibly brave um, and would come and give I mean and, and one of the frustrations is you know when people from minority communities have to give examples because people are skeptical that this could really be happening rather than their word being taken as good but both herself Ruth Smith Margaret Hodge were coming to the PLP reading out some of the messages they were getting and what was happening and I think it was extraordinary to me that you would have a bank of people who would sit there and just be completely stony-faced about it because you couldn't but hear their frustration and hear their anger and feel shamed that that was happening on our watch. And I say our watch because I don't think it's enough to say this was an issue to do with, say, one person in what you know the compliance unit because once you know about a problem like that, if you don't speak out on it and you don't act, then it feels like you are complicit. Um, and for many of us who were part of trying to challenge this within the labour movement so whether it's trying to get people to join the Jewish labour movement trying to get people uh, supporting them in those those PLP meetings it was a a source of extreme frustration as well as sitting there going okay so what would work how do we move on from just this is a problem no it's not a problem to okay what can we do to fix it and still hitting this kind of brick wall of well, we can deal with this when we clearly weren't dealing with it because their pain was coming back week after week after week. Um, and again, to to be in a political movement where you see people who you know are incredibly strong people feeling that way and reduced that way, it's heartbreaking. Earlier, you were talking about the things that Jeremy Corbyn got right. What are the things about his ideology that you disagreed with personally? Well... So again, I go back to the detail. For me, the last four years haven't actually been particularly ideological because we haven't really had ideas driving policies. Now, that might seem counterintuitive to what people have been saying, but actually for me, look, I'm a, a socialist. I joined a socialist political movement at the age of 15 because I wanted social justice to be at the heart of what we were doing. Um, what that means 
now in 2020 compared to the mid 1990s is very different. I always say, you know, I've got jumpers older than the internet. Um, and actually what the last four years for me has been characterized by is a lot of analysis, but not a lot of answers. So we can all say the world is unfair. Um, and indeed you can have a form of grievance politics, which is, and here's someone to blame about it. And that happens on both right and left. So your grievance politics is Donald Trump saying, you know, it's the Mexicans will build a wall to Farage saying it's Europe. Let's get out of Europe. Um, to the left being able to say, well, it's the Tories, as if there's just this kind of generic, well, our analysis is the world is wrong and the government must be to blame for it. It's like, well, actually, is that our answer? Because our answer is just put us in charge without saying what we do. That isn't an answer at all. That's an analysis. Um, so you asked me about his ideology. I, I struggle just because for somebody who is obsessed with, I mean, for my since probably on that bookshelf you'll see you know various nerdy books i i don't feel that we've been led by an ideology you know people will throw about on social media terms like neoliberal and you think well, what do you actually mean by that and you just mean not me you know there's not actually a <laughs> there's not actually a coherent intellectual argument behind that um and i would say that on all sides because i don't think that labor can go into any election again just shouting nhs and police cuts as the reasons why you should vote labor we need to explain, um, you know, the NHS is a particularly good example for me. Like, it, I think about my politics, I think about the community I represent. 50, 60 years ago, we needed an NHS that was very reliant on hospitals and hospital beds because the big health inequalities were things like TB and polio. Now they're heart disease, they're cancer, they're diabetes. Is the most progressive answer to be right? We'll be ready for when you get sick. We'll be ready for when you get your cancer diagnosis. We'll be ready for when you are so ill from diabetes that you might need um, an amputation, you need insulin? Or is it to ask, how do we stop you getting these conditions in the first place? Because there is such a strong correlation between poverty and inequality and getting those conditions. And for me, the most progressive, radical thing to do is to stop people, is to, is to help people live well. That The NHS's future should be about people living well or living with conditions well, rather than waiting for them to get sick. That's an ideological perspective. We haven't had those debates in the last 10, 15 years. Same on education, you know, why are we... For the kids in Walthamstow, the biggest inequality they face is the bank of mum and dad. It's the parents who can help them not just pay tuition fees, but also pay for a new training course, get on a housing ladder, when their job that in an industry that is changing so quickly means it doesn't exist, they need to get into something different. Those kids who have that asset underneath them, there's so many kids in Walthamstow who just don't have that. Um, and if you think about what's happening now with our tax system so from this april um you can inherit a million pounds from your parents in property but there's a whole chunk of kids in walthamstow whose parents don't have property to begin with like you know <laughs> so that asset base that again was not the situation in the great 19 and i talk about 1945 because clem attlee was a walthamstow mp so there's you know, no pressure there um you know the world has changed so very differently those are big ideological questions, right? Is it about trying to protect and preserve what we currently have? Is it about dealing with disruption? Those are not the debates we've been having over the last four years. The debates we've been having over the last four years is who do you blame for things going wrong? Now, don't get me wrong, I want to hold governments accountable, but does that change lives in the way that finding solutions, which is what your ideology should push you to do, does? No, it doesn't. 
You are listening to Corbynism the Postmortem, and this episode was kindly sponsored by the team over at Media Masters Podcast, who produce fascinating one-to-one interviews with some of the very biggest names in media. You can find them at mediamasters.fm. And now, back to the show. Moving on to foreign policy a little here and touching along the ideological world viewpoints. One of the things that's come up a lot in the podcast is how Corbyn's office dealt with the Skripal um, affair. So, you know, national security, things like that. Do you think that played into the view of the Labour Party? So I also think in a world... So, like I say, what I thought was very powerful about what Jeremy did in 2015 was he gave people a sense that things could be different, that change was possible. Great. Uh, which is absolutely critical in socialism because, you know, it, Oscar Wilde was right. It takes a lot of evenings. There's a lot of work to get things moving. Um, but in an environment where one of the reasons why people are very sceptical about whether change is possible, and we say, you know, look, I think people have watched too much Netflix because they believe that there must be a conspiracy theory. And actually, when you think about it, conspiracy theories are quite comforting because it means that there's a plan. So actually, if... If there is a big international world conspiracy against um, Russia um, and America is, you know, the, I mean, there probably is a Netflix program about this. I haven't just found I mean, I've been working my through the way through the box sets on maternity leave. I haven't found it, but I'm sure it's there. Um, that is so much more comforting than living in a world where somebody like Putin is all powerful and as erratic as Donald Trump. You know, <laughs> um, And I think. One of the things that is so frustrating is the desire for the world to be black and white in that way, for actually there to be a simple answer when the reality might be that there are people struggling with despots, struggling with what to do about change, um, hopelessly working with institutions of state that are probably at the end of their shelf life and therefore need to be rethought. Um, and then along comes somebody like Putin or, or, or Trump. You know, we all, I think... Reform of the UN has been one of those things that people in the Labour movement have, t- have talked about in vague terms, again, for the last 10, 15 years. Never thought about what that might look like. Uh, and yet, I, I, I think, I mean, that we have to do that because we are of the political movement that, that worked out that international cooperation was the way in which, and internationalism was the way in which you could bring peace and prosperity and social justice, not just to yourselves, but to other, other nations in the 1950s. What that looks like now in 2020 is going to be very, very different. Um, but we've never had that debate. We've we've worked in very generalist terms, partly because there's this conspiracy that actually, you know, the all-powerful Americans probably have somebody with a deep throat in a car park somewhere deciding what really is going to happen. What if that's not true? <laughs> what if actually it is up to all of us to try and make this work? I mean, that's quite scary for people. That's a lot of work. Um, we were talking earlier about people talking about, you know, ethical foreign policies and Robin Cook and I think Robin Cook was of that era as well of people who were struggling with well you've got principle and then you've got messy reality where's the common ground in all of this because if the alternative is that we end up saying this is all too terribly complicated and we do nothing people will die as much as if we try to do something and we make it worse. So obviously your constituency has quite um, different problems to it than say Anna Turley who was also on the show in Redka um, her constituents had very different issues. On the doorstep, when you were talking to people about Jeremy Corbyn, how did they respond? Because obviously he's a lot more popular in, in London than he is than he was outside of it, as it were. Well, to be fair to Jeremy, he's also the MP not that far down the road. I mean, the, 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 you know, familiarity doesn't always breed contempt in politics. I mean, there's an irony in that somewhere. Um, 
but also I think look, there was a recognition that he had been supportive of causes and concerns that perhaps people had ignored and there is there is power in people's perception there's power in actually being noticed especially um I, i'm very proud to represent a community that's got links all over the world i actually think i think the thing about the coronavirus is showing us that we're not so separated as people think we are um as a country and but actually, if you live and work in a community where, I mean, I call Walthamstow God's own country, not just to annoy the people from Yorkshire, but because we've got a bit of everything. So you are very alive to uh, what's happening in Kashmir, what's happening in Sri Lanka, Burma, um, let alone the Israel-Palestine conflict, let alone um, how then things are portrayed. You know, um, I've got a Venezuelan community in Walthamstow, so you know, you're very conscious of those things. Um so actually, I would say that, yes, there were some communities that were... She's going to hiccup now on yours. <laughs> there are some communities that were very um, switched on to what Labour were doing. And that, and that's not a new thing. I mean, the last Labour government, for example, did a huge... I mean, David Miliband did a huge amount of work in Sri Lanka, for example. That translated for our local Tamil community in the way that the current government has been much more mixed about it. Um, because you had people like Liam Fox who said what matters is being able to trade rather than the fact that people were dying. Um, so, uh, so I'm going long-winded about it. It's not, not a new thing for people to see the world through a prism of different conflicts that have connections to people at home. Um, but I think what was also interesting were people who were challenging our worldview. So um, you talk about Scripple. There were actually people who were very concerned because of Russian, so the Ukrainian community, for example, in Walthamstow, who I, I mean, I've done, I'm on the Council of Europe, so we were doing a lot of work in the Council of Europe about standing up for human rights in... Um, so, you know, Jeremy Corbyn wrote an article before he became leader blaming NATO for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So I'm, I'm sure that probably didn't go down so well with your Ukrainian constituents. I don't know if they've read the article. I think there was a concern... Um, and I had look, I had a concern, but partly because I was working with people from the Donbass on the Euro- uh, but also people who were. So we, we, whilst I've been on the Council of Europe, we've had the decision to bring Russia back in. That's been very difficult to deal with as well. And um, yeah, well, actually, one of the Russian one of the Russian delegates did that to me in the in the in the chamber when I was talking about Chechnya and talking about um, the Ukraine and 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 uh, human rights in Russia more generally. Um, I mean, for, for, I mean, there was a threatening sort of uh, facial. No, he, 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 he actually he, he put his finger across his neck. I was like, it's like this is it's almost comical, and it's kind of. And again, I thought you don't really mean that, but there's a kind of belief that somehow Russia has this um, international conspiracy in the same way that America does with people. And actually, I just think people aren't that competent anymore to be able to be that organised, um, which is all the more frightening. Uh, what I was saying, so look the the absolutely as a community with links around the world you are conscious about the impact of various conflicts on people's thinking at home because because they look to the uk as having this status i mean actually you know that's what makes me so sad listening to boris johnson's speech at the start of the year where he talked about global britain and how we were going to be world champions of free trade by closing the door on all our relationships that we built up over generations with people to be able to advocate difficult things. Yeah, it's not that we've had a great reputation in Europe for a length of time. Um, we've always been difficult. But in being difficult, we've been able to champion causes and champion change. I think it's the same at the UN, but we've not chosen to use that power. Um, so now, 
you know, there were points where in the history of Sri Lanka, for example, the UK played a very powerful role. Um, when it comes to Burma, you know, I have um, some, some amazing uh, uh, constituents who are part of the Rohingya human rights activism and are facing, I mean, their families are facing repression at home as a result of their activities here. You know, they're cut off from their families and who look to us and look to the United Kingdom, not just because of our history, but because of our status or their perception of our statuses around the world to be able to help. And I'm not sure that we can anymore because of that status being traduced by the kind of politics we've been practising in this country. So you had a bit of a disagreement with some local party activists over what Britain's response to the Syria crisis should be, and particularly um, ISIS and their treatment of the Kurds. Um, you know, can you talk me through a little bit about that and how that plays into as you were bringing up the idea of uh, Britain's role in the world and protecting people and you yeah. know your personal so view of it? I would say I didn't have a disagreement with them about... Um, Britain's role. I had a disagreement with them about who they spoke for and who spoke for Walthamstow. Um, so one of the things I think is quite powerful about British politics over the last couple of years and quite dangerous is that um, everybody filters. Now, whether they do it consciously or not, um, but it does mean that people start conversations with me saying, well, everyone I know in Walthamstow agrees with me that. And I think I've got the post bag. I just know that's not the case. Um, which wasn't the case when I first got elected in 2010. People were more open to the idea that there might be people who disagreed with them. Absolutely, the decision to take on ISIS in Syria was incredibly controversial. Interestingly, the decision to take on ISIS in Iraq, because the Iraqi government, and people could argue about the Iraqi government's ability to speak for the Iraqi people, as we're now seeing, wasn't seen as controversial. Um, some of that coincided with let's say, some political organising in my constituency. Um, but I've always believed... Look, one of the things, problems, I think, in our British politics is we treat the public like they're children. We act as if the 650 people in the place that looks like Hogwarts gone wrong are the only people who could possibly deal with difficult issues and difficult conversations, who could only get the briefings. Um, I, I don't believe that. I think any the whole point about democracy is anybody should be able to do the job that I do. You're meant to be able to represent and engage your community. So on something like that, I deliberately as i've done in previous difficult issues made a point of sharing with the local community everything people were briefing us on here all updates on all the information we're being given <coughs> yeah that was true wasn't it <laughs> the trade-offs are involved because the reality back in 2015 is that there wasn't a good choice to be made there were two really terrible choices do you knowing what knowing what isis were doing do you do you try and intervene or not? Because if you intervene, you could make things worse, but if you don't intervene, things could get worse too. And when I looked at the balance of probabilities in terms of what was being proposed, in particular about trying to disrupt their access to finance, trying to disrupt their access to land, um, versus uh, what was happening... Um, so obviously there'd been the situation in Kobani and there'd been um, the Yazidis. I mean, I'm still trying to do work with the Yazidis. I find it extraordinary that we haven't really, as a country... Um, I, I tried to persuade a couple of years ago the government to follow what the Germans had done and have a, a Yazidi refugee process and they just, nobody wants to talk about it. And he thought, yeah, but the reality in politics is always, it's not that there's the good thing to be done or nothing to be done. There is different things that you can do. Some may work, some may not work, but not doing anything has a consequence too. And it seemed to me very clear that to not intervene with ISIS at that point had a far greater consequence than to try to intervene and to take the responsibility and the risk that that might not work. 
I think subsequently it's been proven that that was a powerful moment of intervention. That doesn't necessarily mean intervention will always work. Look, I, you know, I also supported action in Libya and I think people are right to be concerned about what happened next. Um, I do a lot of work on refugees, a lot of the people who are in Calais. People think the people in Calais are Syrian. They're not. There's lots of people from Libya. There's lots of people who come from the, the, the slave trade. You know, there's, there's real issues there about our failure as a world community to be able to follow things through. Um, but the debate I had at the time and the action I took at the time was to say to people, this is hard. You know, you can't just say to me, I don't know. I mean, there were the people who were saying to me, well, we should just send humanitarian work. And you were like, well, go and talk to Alan Helling's family about what the idea of sending humanitarian people to deal with a nihilistic death cult. Which or is what, the, UN, the UN convoy that was bombed by the Russian Air Force, yeah. you know, heading into Aleppo. It's, you know... It's, I mean, you know, we the, the world community had got to a point where, with ISIS, there wasn't a... You know, what, what's your negotiating point? How many people are you allowed to throw off a building... Um, how many people are you allowed to stone to death? It, it, it was inconceivable that, that perhaps di- traditional diplomatic means would work and certainly to suggest that humanitarian aid was the thing that was going to protect um, uh, people from a murderous cult in the way in which they were didn't seem to make sense to me. None of that absolves us of our responsibility for what is happening now in Syria. And um, it is very notable to me that the same people who were very angry with me for supporting that action have been... Um, very silent on what Assad has been doing, and or and and, and sometimes, and I, I think, you know, we as politicians have to take responsibility for this. Is that people have conflated the barrel bombing that Assad did with what the UK government was supporting? Um, they've seen it all because they've just thought, well, there's there's, there's military action in Syria, so it's all one and the same thing. Um, and their understandable concern. I mean, you look at what's happening in Idlib. You, you know, you talk to people. We have a big Syrian community in Walthamstow now. Um, you cannot help be, but be horrified. And they presume that's what the UK government was talking about doing and what we were supporting. And it behoves people like me to try and separate out the difference. Sometimes on social media, with more patience than perhaps I have, um, and to say, look, you know, actually what has happened now is Assad is in charge. I mean, Assad is what is happening in Idlib now. People are, people have forgotten about it. Um, and every so often all that pops up is somebody who in 2015 um, challenged me on the serious stuff saying, oh, well, this is you, you want to bomb people. And you're like, no, actually, I want to stop people from dying and there are difficult choices to be made if you're going to do that. Um, so it was, it was a very difficult time because trying to have what was quite a nuanced conversation with people thinking this is Iraq Mark II and I'm somebody who didn't agree with the decision to go to war in Iraq um, but you know our, our politics wants easy easy, e- easy analysis doesn't it? it wants to be able to say this is a person who likes bombs or that doesn't like bombs it's like you know I don't like human rights abuses is my general principle that's why I'm on the Council of Europe that's why I want to stand up to ISIS why I think we should stand up to Assad it's why we have to stand up to Russia it doesn't make it easy to do you praised uh, Corbynism for engaging a lot of people in in politics that that maybe previously have been put off by politics. Yeah. Do you think with subjects like intervention, um, you know, issues like this, that actually Corbynism or the followers of Jeremy Corbyn, his loudest supporters, might have shut down debate on these issues and and chosen you know partisan positions like blanket opposition to any intervention over any actual discussion about policy details as you tried to bring so one of the things i've been quite surprised about was um people who didn't want to hear from 
uh, you know, the, the, having a community like Walthamstow that has people who have family who've come from particular areas, actually having those people come and want to engage and have people say, no, no, we don't want to hear from them because they presume that they must be, quote unquote, stooges. And you sort of think, well... <laughs> They fled from the area, so I think they're probably not, a, you know, not going to be the biggest fans of Assad. Um, is quite telling, uh, and also I think look, one, one of the things is so powerful. So I'm, I'm incredibly proud of a young man called Eden Walthamstow. With any luck, you'll know him this year because he'll be competing in Tokyo 2020 in the refugee team as a swimmer. Um, Eid was a refugee from Syria, a young man who uh, got came to this country he has got status he got housed in Walthamstow very randomly decided one night after seeing a video of Michael Phelps swimming that he wanted to learn to swim because he never learned to swim our local pool happened to be an Olympic pool he got picked up by one of the coaches and we're we're now training him uh it is extraordinary and humbling to talk to Ede about where he's come from what he's I mean you know the guy has been through so much and say might end up being an Olympic champion uh, but he's also um going back to university to do his accountancy degree and you just think yeah this is this is the point this is the human element of this this is a guy who just wanted a normal life and his life has been completely disrupted and if i have to sit through another um generic kind of gc motion that somehow says that never helping people like this is morally the right thing to do um i i will scream because because you're missing the human consequence. And it's not just that, you know, we say we've got people from Venezuela in Walthamstow. Um, you know, the consequences of turning the other cheek in Sri Lanka have been extraordinary to people, um, let alone Kashmir. And, you know, in Kashmir, both the Pakistan and Indian government have, have questions to answer. But somehow that doesn't translate to people because somehow it's always wrong to want to help and I think people are right people are absolutely right with our history as a country our colonial history our imperialist history to ask how do you do it how do you do it in a way that is based on human rights there has to be a way if the left is ever going to be not just eligible for government but also capable of being a voice for for, for good in the world then we have to rethink how we do foreign policy but that rethinking cannot start from a perspective that the first thing we do is to look away you know, it has to come from being able to be the internationalist that, that has always been part of our movement, but understanding that what that means in 2020 may be very different, that actually the way in which the UN works probably is too top-down, probably is um, too, uh, too sectional in what it does. That's not an argument to get rid of the UN, that's an argument for reform of the UN. Um, same in terms of military intervention. And until someone can explain to me how if we've always got a view that we would never intervene, we would have helped people in Kosovo, then I, then I will always believe that actually you have to look at it on a case-by-case basis and you have to be able to do things in a way that may include military intervention. And that is difficult because immediately you say that, people say, right, you're a warmonger. You know, it's the reverse. Um, the world has to understand that people won't look away when others are in peril because otherwise it's very easy to put people in peril. You are listening to Corbynism, the Postmortem, and this episode was kindly sponsored by the team over at Media Masters Podcast, who produce fascinating one-to-one interviews with some of the very biggest names in media. You can find them at mediamasters.fm. And now, back to the show. So Brexit is the other major issue in the election that we haven't really touched upon. How do you feel the leader and his office dealt with that issue from 2016 onwards? So I... 
was very open that the reason why I uh, voted no confidence in Jeremy Corbyn was in the way in which he approached Brexit, because it wasn't for me about whether there were policy disagreements. It felt to me like he was sitting on the bench for one of the biggest progressive challenges that we faced. And I say that as somebody who, again, sat in meetings, sat in discussions where we were all begging the leadership to get more involved, um, to help make the case, uh, understanding the concern about... I mean, like, look, let's be clear, the Remain campaign was terrible. Um, it was elitist. It was uh, mainly young men, um, and I can say this as you know, who... I mean, I, they barked at me, let alone barked at the public, um, and I was supposed to be on their side... Um, kind of making people feel small for wanting to question what the point of this big international institution was and how it worked. There was a, a massive progressive-shaped hole in the argument for staying in the European Union. Um, and there has been ever since. And I would say that people like me have to take, take responsibility for that um, because, because we never really argued about Europe. We took it as, as read the idea that an organi- a, a movement built on the idea of cooperation would want to cooperate with other countries. Um, it was extremely frustrating at the time in 2016 and continue to be that we seemed kind of half-hearted having then lost the argument in 2016 to then kind of go well that's it we can't then have the courage of our convictions to say right what does cooperation look like okay you want to make Brexit happen is this you know because there are 101 flavours of Brexit as we're all now discovering None of that was part of the debate internally or externally. Um, I have to be honest, I think that the debate around Brexit brought out the worst in the Labour movement, both in temperament and in policy making, and maybe reflects that concern about a lack of ideology. You know, why, what is the fundamental principle behind why you would cooperate with anybody, whether it's on the UN, whether it's on in the European Union, has been reduced to, well, is this a north-south issue? You know? <laughs> um, if we think it is good for people in... Walthamstow, as much as Wigan, as much as in Scotland, to have access to that international cooperation, we should be fighting for it. That was always my principle, um, because people felt disconnected from the political establishment in my community as much as they did in other parts of the country. I mean, that's why um, myself and Lisa Nandy, for example, we did a lot of work on um, citizens' assemblies and trying to say, look, there's your policy question about what your future relationship with Europe should be. And then there's just a process question about how you make decisions because it, we, we've got to be able to respond to the fact that the public are going, whatever we do, you're not listening. Um, so even if we take different views about what the outcome should be, we need a different way of having that conversation because clearly the way we're doing things doesn't work for people. I still think that's the case. And I think the saddest thing of all for me in this election has been the kind of presumption that parts of the country are our communities, are our towns, are our cities, are our people, partly because it means that you're suggesting there are other people who aren't. And I've never thought socialism was about picking a side, you know, that you you, you sort of you needed to find a group of people to hate because it was okay because they weren't ours. Um, but also for a lot of people that felt like we were taking them for granted. And I don't think that's consigned to the seats that we won any more than we lost, you know. So Brexit itself not only divided the country, the Conservative Party, the Labour Party, but it also divided Corbynites. You had sort of two factions yeah. that you had the sort of pro-Europe Lloyd Russell Moyle wing, and then you had the more Ian Lavery, you know, Brexit at see, all costs one, sort of wing. One of the things wing. I find really frustrating about sort of the momentum, so the, the, the kind of, there was always just one division. You were either for them or against them, and that was it. 
Um, and it wasn't just about Brexit. So sorry to interrupt your question, but I was thinking about this the other day about um, some of the other big debates. And I actually remember go- trying to talk to some of the members of Momentum in my constituents and say, look, on this issue, we agree, we should work together, we should campaign on it. And one of them just turned around to me and said, look, sorry, Stella, but we just, we're not going to be able to work with you on anything. So it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's just like you're, you're on the, you're on the wrong side. You just, you're just on the wrong side. And I was like, but, but we agree on this. I mean, I'm happy to work with you. And there was a kind of like, no, because it almost like it felt impure to them to find there might be common points of agreement. I mean, I've been in the Labour movement for 26, 27 years. I've never entirely agreed with any Labour leader on anything, but I've always campaigned for Labour governments on the basis that I know my own mind. Sometimes it's wrong, sometimes it's right. But where I find people I agree with, you should work with them. And it was extraordinary to me that because they couldn't cope with people who they disagreed with maybe having a point, that when it came to something like Brexit, it split them because they couldn't say, actually, we might agree to disagree. Um, Because it it made you just realise it wasn't actually about the ideas. It was about the status. It was almost like socialism was a scout badge that you had to wear. Um, And that's really sad because then it shows people that it's not about thinking. And look, you know, ideology requires some thought. So the reason I brought that division up is to say that there is still a, a loud portion of the party that are saying... Jeremy Corbyn was popular. His, I mean, they they are, believe it or not. Um, Jeremy Corbyn was popular. The manifesto was popular. What killed us, and looking at the Ashcroft polling, clearly everyone agrees with us, is that Brexit's what killed us. It moved us away from our working class base. It disconnected us. We should have gone and stayed and remained the Brexit party. Is that your take on it, or would you disagree well, I think, with that? I think what I, we talked earlier about filtering, and that's essentially, you know, we find people who agree with us. Um, and I think you have to you have to separate out the two things. So, like, I think it's very important to listen to people who disagree with you, not because you can then find a group. So, the good example of this for me is uh, Mrs. Brown's Boys, one of the most popular programs in this country. I, I can't stand it. Right, I, I I don't enjoy watching it. I've tried, but I get that a lot of other people do. So, I'm very mindful that if you're talking about national, you know, the BBC investing in programs. Um, you know, they're going to pay for Mrs. Brown's boys because it's popular and that's a fair thing for them to do. It doesn't mean that I have to change my tastes. Um, And ideology should be a bit like that. Like, you know, we have lost lots of arguments in this country and we are losing arguments about the future of this country. But one of the reasons we're losing them is because we look like we're we're telling... My my granddad, when he was alive, used to have the most maddening phrase ever, which is you'd have a debate with him and he'd say, well, if you disagree with me, I can only beg you to think further. And I feel like sometimes the Labour movement's got itself into that position. So we've almost stopped acknowledging that people might disagree with us. And that looks like a source of weakness rather than a source of strength. Um, You know, now, caveats to that. You know, I'm never going to say you should listen to fascists, right? I'm never going to say, oh, well, the, the BNP have got a point. Uh, these are people who are, to me, fundamentally anti-democratic. But you set aside a separate set of... You know, people who want to deny other people's voices are not part of a democracy. But in a democracy, if there are other people who have different voices, listening to them, sometimes it's helpful because it makes you reaffirm why you're right. Other times, they might have a point. Above all else, a political movement founded on the concept of collective engagement that looks like only certain people are allowed to speak isn't probably living its values so you were seen as obviously quite hostile to the corbyn project by certain 
elements uh, within the party. Uh, can you talk me through about some of the abuse you received? Well, and- I have tried to get my mother off Twitter, but she's still... <laughs> you see, again, I find that... I mean, I... As I say, I've never... <laughs> I've never been somebody... Look, I didn't... Let's be, let's be blunt about it. I didn't particularly promote Labour Party press releases in 2010 or 2015. I don't do that in 2020. I find that stuff a bit icky, to be honest. Um, you know, uh, so <laughs> to be told that that makes me disloyal because I think, actually, I want to be authentic. And authentic for me is the ideas, it's the debates, it's it's the concept that it's okay to disagree. Look, I, I might be wrong about a lot of stuff. I'm willing to believe that Jeremy Corbyn is right about some stuff and I'm wrong about it. In the same way I was willing to believe that Tony Blair might be right about stuff and I was wrong about it. Um, but I refuse to cede to the idea that therefore that means I shouldn't ask questions. Um, and what you would get, say, my, my main critique of Momentum & Co was never about the ideas, it was the lack of them. And that's what used to drive me crazy. As somebody who comes from a community organising background, who was quite excited about that element of... I mean, I stood for deputy leader because I wanted us to move on from being um, a machine to a movement again because I felt we'd become a machine. And so other people who were talking about the importance of empowering communities and engaging, I was like, brilliant, let's do this. And I actually met with Momentum going, great, okay, let's collaborate then. And then they said, yeah, so what we want to do is have lots of meetings where people stick their hands up and tell us who they hate. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to, ch- like, <laughs> let's go and take on the next sort of legal loan sharks. Let's go and, you know, rebuild the credit union movement. No, they weren't interested in that. Uh, that's what really drove me crazy was all that energy that built up in 2015 being told that the most empowering thing you could do is sit in a meeting and stick your hand up. And that, that's never been the case for me, <laughs> you know. So obviously with the abuse, the anti-Semitism, there was, a, there was a movement of cranks into the party. What do you think drew the cranks to Corbynism? Cranks is quite a hard word, Oz, I think. Um, I definitely think people have joined the Labour... I mean, look, I know there are people who are members of the Labour Party who should be members of other political parties because they're still members of those other political parties and they boast about it on their social media. Um... I think I think there was a point in 2015, maybe in 2016, where people thought uh, something was happening within the Labour movement and they wanted to be part of it and to have a, a ringside seat. Uh, some of it for good reasons, because they felt this was about a different type of politics. Some of it for more malign reasons. Um, what I think is really tragic over the last four years is you still ended up with people obsessed about who's on the GC and what motions people are passing. Um, and you know that isn't for me the way in which you make change happen Um, and I worry now that we've got a whole bunch of people who've been again let down about the possibility of progressive social activism Um, and there's a chunk of people who have told them that the most important thing they can do is is be silent and and voting fodder and I I never had any time for it with what people would call the hard right of the Labour movement I don't have any time for it on the hard left you know, um, I always say to people, I'm your worst nightmare as your MP because I'm going to get you involved, but that's how I know change happens. So, you know, last night we had our nomination meeting and um, absolutely, you know, hundreds of people turn up and I'm asking people to help us with the work we're doing to help the refugees in Calais because the whole point about the Labour movement is that we don't sit on the sidelines, we do get stuck in and there's 200 unaccompanied minors right now sleeping rough in Calais and we could do something about that. Uh, And I can do things in Parliament, but they can also do things within the community. What is extraordinary to me 
is the numbers of people who say, yeah, but it's much more important that we pass a motion in our branch meeting about that than actually, you know, collect tins and get them out to Calais. Um, I remember being picketed once by the far left for food, for, for taking donations for our local food bank because we needed people to starve to prove a political point. Well, you know, forgive me, but I think I'm far more radical if I actually want to stop them starving and make the political point rather than using people in that way. Um, that group of people now being interested and indeed members of the Labour Party is symptomatic, I think, of that wider question about ideology. Like, what's the point? Um, you know, people are looking at the leadership contest and saying, well, we need a new person. I actually think we need a new project because that project needs to be the ideas that you're working on in 2020, which are different from 97, different from 64, different from 45. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't sit through those meetings. And yes, the abuse that my family has had, that I've had, uh, that that just seems to be normalised now as an acceptable way to behave to somebody, as though you're all 13-year-old girls in the playground, um, if I didn't think it was possible to affect change. I just know it's bloody hard work. My final question to you is, on the back of Labour's most crushing defeat in 84 years, what do you think the party needs to do to become a party of power again? So I think we are a party of power because there's power in our ideas. I think we have to live and breathe and act on them. I'm not prepared to wait out five years of just sitting around going, well, Boris Johnson's a terrible person. That's a given for me. It should be, you know, it's the floor, not the ceiling of our ambition to highlight how awful this government is and the things that they're doing. So I think that the challenge for the Labour movement right now is to set out now the things that we will work on. Uh, give you a good example of this. This is a country drowning in personal debt. Um, now that Brexit has happened, it's quite likely the economy will take a hit. It's quite likely that yet again you'll have a government in the same way they did in 2010 that balances the books off the back of the pockets of people in communities like mine. So they end up borrowing more and they borrow to pay their mortgages, they borrow to put food on their table. There are things that we could do to change the law in this country to mean that people won't get drowned in debt. Um, there are things that we need to do within our education system that we could champion that mean that kids don't need to just rely on the bank of mum and dad if they're ever going to get ahead. And one of the things I've always believed is that you don't have to be in office to have power. You seek office to have greater power. So I think Labour needs to live that values. I think we need to be clear about the changes that we would be making now and challenge this government on them. Because actually, if the last couple of weeks have shown us anything, whether it's on HS2 or Huawei um, or even what he's going to do on Brexit... Boris Johnson, and I, you know, I think he's a great lesson for Nicola Sturgeon, actually. Be careful what you wish for. If you've spent a lifetime saying, well, whatever the problem is, the answer is leaving the European Union, and that is now happening, all the problems, all the challenges that you should have been dealt with are there. You know, we've known for several years there's a problem in our prisons, for example, with radicalisation, and this government hasn't done anything about it, and now they're trying to make policy on the hoof. The Labour movement shouldn't make the same mistake of sitting back and waiting until we get into office to do something, because we'll be waiting a while. We should be showing what difference we would make now, and I think the public would really respond to that. You know, you ask about why we lost the election and why people don't think people like us connect with them. Like, one of the things I think is it's not that they actually have to be somebody that people want to go down the pub with, right? I'm, I'm the MP. It's always going to be a bit like inviting your head teacher to the pub with you, but they want to know that you know what you're doing. Right. They want to see your homework. They want detail. They want to get a sense of what you're about. And you can't just be the person who's going, well, I'm not them. You have to be people going, well, what if we did this? I still believe if we do that, if we do that on people's debts, if we do that on education, if we do that, yeah, on what Europe should look like, then we can convince the public that we've got a plan. 
And I think we can do that in very radical ways. I think the sadness over the last couple of years is that we've told people to stop thinking because it's dangerous. You'll be seen as somehow disloyal. Well, now we need a lot more critical thinking if we're ever going to get back into power before in her lifetime, let alone mine. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us, Stella. Thank you for listening to this episode of Corbynism, the Postmortem. I'd like to give a huge thank you to our guest, Stella Creasy MP. If you've enjoyed the series, please consider supporting the show by subscribing to my Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash ozcategy. This episode was kindly sponsored by the wonderful Media Masters podcast, hosted by Paul Blanchard. The show is a series of one-to-one interviews with the very biggest media names, and you can find out more at mediamasters.fm. Thanks for tuning in.